one thing another doctor said to me in the emergency room uh, was just like, oh yeah, if you were like a typical 40-year-old male, you probably would have suffocated on the side of the road before we got to you. Um, you know, because like one of my lungs had been, you know, deflated and the other one had like contusions in it. So it's kind of that like, oh, okay. Like, I mean, you could think of it one way. Like I traded my world championship Ironman fitness for a get out of death free card, right? So it's like a second lease huh. on life, as they say. So of course it reinforced this idea that it's like, man, at any moment, you know, we tend to try to think of things as like nouns or status that we have like, oh, I am this. I am an Ironman athlete. I am a world championship. It's like, no, you're not. That's not, that's what you do. And maybe right. you do it well, but it is not who you are. At any moment, that's gone. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and develop your path and journey. Today's guest is Jason Hardrath. Jason is an adventure athlete, speaker, and physical education specialist who's made a lifestyle out of pursuing his passion for human performance. After running track and field in college, Jason eventually found himself competing in longer distance events like marathons and Ironmans. His work ethic soon paid off, and he qualified for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in 2015. Training was going amazing for Jason leading up to the World Championships, until a car accident changed everything. He was ejected from his car, which left him with, among other injuries, a collapsed lung, multiple broken ribs, a broken shoulder, and a torn ACL. Not allowing the setback to remove his passion for endurance and mountaineering, Jason, after recovering enough so that he regained an ability to run, ended up discovering FKTs, or fastest known times. FKTs are essentially a speed record on any given route. Jason will go over them in more detail during the interview. There's no formal race or event for these routes, which include everything from long-distance hiking trails to circumnavigation of lakes or mountains, or completing a link-up of multiple peaks. Jason is currently on a quest to become the first athlete to 100 FKTs, and as of this episode's release, he's at 97. We cover a lot in this interview. We discuss how he got into endurance sport, his 2015 car accident, perspectives on moving forward from traumatic experiences, his journey to 100 FKTs, minimalism, and much more. And so, without further ado, my interview with Jason Hardrath. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. I'm excited to have this conversation. What are all the license plates in the background? Oh, those are... Oh, those are, those are license plates. Those are... Are those bibs? Yep, bibs okay. of the races that I've run over the course of my life. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah, for those of you listening, um, he has all of his racing bibs posted on the or pasted on the wall behind him yeah that's very cool yeah this is my office at school so it provokes conversations with students about life decisions and things <laughs> yeah yeah that's cool awesome how was uh i guess how is everything generally i mean all things considered like i definitely have zero complaints to file um i mean this whole learning to teach online school and 
trying to help kids actually learn through it has been a huge stress and a huge difficulty and a burden on all people involved. I mean, it's not great for parents either. But we're figuring it out. And uh, we just got the news that at least out here in rural Oregon, we're going to be able to have our kids come back to a hybrid format um, okay. as of next week, which is good news. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is makes good. A, makes a big difference. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. And where, where are you located? Where are you calling in from? Uh, Southern Oregon, outside of Klamath Falls, a little tiny town called Bonanza. Okay. That sounds very rural. <laughs> <laughs> it is very rural. <laughs> yeah. So let's start things off at the beginning here. Uh, where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Baker City, Oregon, um, which is in northeastern Oregon, um, kind of between Pendleton and Boise, Idaho on I-84, if somebody knows the area. Okay. Interesting. And so is that like a very mountainous like region of, of Oregon? Yeah, it's a pretty picturesque little historic town nestled in the Elkhorn Mountains. Okay. Um, so, yeah, kind of grew up with a, a mountain background. Yeah. yeah. Um, just hanging, hanging out on the skyline. Yeah. And was being active and being outside something that was encouraged by your parents growing up? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like a small agriculture town. So the way people got outside was to go hunting, to go fishing um to go ride you know motorsports whether it's atvs or, or dirt bikes um so i grew up thinking getting out into the middle of nowhere and camping was a normal human behavior but right definitely no one really from my hometown or my family like does endurance or like exercise based pursuits um so kind of kind of fell a little bit far from the tree there but <laughs> but uh got the got the taste for getting into the outdoors and being out in remote spaces right right so did you did you play a lot of sports growing up um yeah i was a i was an adhd little kid so we discovered that for me to function in normal society i had to get lots <laughs> of movement time um so yeah i got encouraged to be in in sports and activities from a very young age and found them to be very important for myself from a very young age mm -hmm. and was was running like your favorite activity slash sport growing up or were you more or did you like other sports before you discovered running so i mean there was a little bit of a progression um probably the first thing i can say i got extremely into and a, like a you could even say a bit of obsessed with was skating uh all you know different forms of it skateboarding rollerblading you know when scooters came out was doing that for a while BM, bmx biking all of like the x game sports x games were super popular back then okay um and so got into that kind of stuff during my early teenhood and before my teenhood um and was doing that a ton, just like sneaking out of the house and going skating all day, you know, typical recalcitrant behavior. <laughs> uh, and I think that's where I kind of built my fitness and built that mental perspective. Cause with like skateboarding and, and those trick sports, you'll try a trick over and over and fail and fail and fail and fail. And so I think that's where I sort of developed that, the mindset of like just repetitively trying a thing until you figure it out. Right. Um, as well as just being a good like movement outlet for me and kind of built fitness that way too. Um, then I broke my wrist going into middle school and my parents were like, sweet, now we can tell them no more skating while you're under our house because it's too expensive. Um, 
And so kind of discovered running right around the same time through just PE. Um, no one was running under a six minute mile in my middle school. And I was kind of close. I was running like a 620 or something. And I was like, oh, I want to be, I want to be the one that breaks six. I want to, I want to be the one with like the fastest mile. That'd be crazy. That, that'd be unbelievable. And so I like set that goal and then worked really hard. And in the very last PE mile of the, of that school year, uh, ran a 557. And I can remember coming through the line and hearing, hearing the, the PE coach read off 557 and just like flopping into the grass, feeling like the worst pain I'd ever felt, you know, in my childhood life to that experience, to that point, just like my body was lit on fire. Um, but being like so proud and that kind of got me hooked on like this goal setting mindset and this belief that like if you set a big goal and you're willing to just like work really hard, you can accomplish whatever you set your mind to kind of thing. Um, and so that's where that kind of started and then started setting more goals related to running. And also, I'd, I guess a little side story is I'd grown up in a football town with a football family. So okay. I kind of was football already. Um, and then by about halfway through high school, I'd like made it onto varsity on the high school teams with running. And it kind of became sort of this natural progression to realize like, uh, I shouldn't be playing football anymore. I should be running cross country so that I can do more training and potentially fulfill this new goal, this new dream of like getting onto a college team and getting a scholarship. Um, and so I remember it was a big, tough, emotional decision to like tell my father that I wasn't going to play football. Um, and switching to cross country. But yeah, so the goals just kind of kept kept progressing from, you know, trying to make it on varsity in high school to making it to state to getting to sign a letter of intent to a, a college team. Um, and so those goals sort of stayed a, uh, a, a huge plot line in my story that gave me meaning and purpose and something to focus on. Right, right. Well, that's impressive. So you broke the six minute mile at middle school. I did. Yeah. Yeah. 557 in middle wow. school. Yeah. That's really impressive. So I, prior to what you're doing now with FKTs, um, like you were really into marathons and Ironmans, right? And like, how did, how did, like, what was that progression like, like eventually getting into that sort of stuff? So, I mean, running for me became very personal. I became a very, uh, very much a student of my sport. I was very driven and, you know, I was exploring it to the fullest I could to understand it and how to become good at it. So it was a huge theme for me because moving my body was so important to my mental health. Right. Um, and so because it was something very personal, I would constantly be looking for the next thing. So like I was one of the only people in my high school who would train for my sport year round. Um, once I got to be like a sophomore, I started training through the winter for the next cross country season in, in the fall, or excuse me, uh, I, I got that backwards in the spring, <laughs> excuse me, the track season. Um, and so I would just constantly like, anytime I would achieve a goal, the natural thing would be to like, well, what's the next sort of like natural intermediate or big goal to start moving toward. Um, and so that's kind of how it went is I ran through college and I mean, just I don't want people to mistake me as like some super athlete. Like I literally barely hung on to the bottom varsity spot of my college team by working my ass off. Am I allowed to say that on here? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Working my ass off just to hang that last position. Um, by way of example, uh, 
I had this old school coach, an old guy that like was a wrestling coach and a track coach. And so he had this like, just try harder, you know, just <laughs> yeah. run faster kind of mentality. I get that, but yeah. he would occasionally read books and try new things. And he read a book on like heart rate training, apparently one of the years I was there. And so for like all of a few practices, we were taking heart rates between like repeats on hill repeats or something. And one of the times where how underpowered I was as an athlete got driven home we were doing these like 300 meter all out hill repeats up a steep hill. And, you know, after like standing uh, at the top for like 90 seconds, he's like, okay, heart rates, um, you know, in hope that our heart rate had dropped to a proper level for us to do the next repeat. And so he starts going around the circle and it's like, Ben, what's your heart rate? 126. Um, Beeson, what's your heart rate? 132. Um, Greg, what's your, what's your heart rate? Oh, 135. He gets to me. Hard draft. What's your heart rate? Oh, 178. Don't worry about it, coach. Let's just oh, go. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so just like maxing myself out to hang with these guys that were like clearly, you know, superior cardiovascularly. Um, but I think that also like sort of was the fiery forge that I took myself through. Mm. Um to be able to do some of the things I've done since. And so it became a natural progression to try to search for the next thing I could excel in. So I tried to make the transition to marathoning my senior year of college in hopes to qualify for nationals because in the NAIA division, uh, the marathon is a part of the national competition for track. Okay. Um, and I, did, I was unsuccessful with that. It was too short of a transition time to, for my body to adapt, um, but then stuck with that and also discovered cycling um, during that time and biked across the U.S. as I graduated college and signed up for my second Wait, marathon. wait, 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 just, just because? <laughs> like, how did that? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know why, but I bought my first road bike. Well, I know why I bought the road bike, but I don't know why the idea, like, stuck in my head. I bought a road bike when I was about halfway through college because I was going to do a short off-road triathlon with a friend. And, mm -hmm. I, and since I was buying a mountain bike, I was like, well, I'll buy a road bike too and see if I enjoy it. Um, just, you know, bottom out of somebody's garage, super cheap. And the mountain biking didn't do anything special for me. But the moment I hit 20 miles an hour, the first time on a road bike, the idea I should bike across the United States, hit me like a brick out of the sky, <laughs> and I could not get it out of my head for the next two years. And so as I approached graduation, I kind of was like, having these fears, if you would ask me at that time, and still probably to this day, what my greatest fear is, it's waking up 30 years later and wondering what the fuck I did with my life. Um, and so there was like this interim since I studied to become a teacher where it's like, oh, this is like, you know, I have this time between when I finish school and when I start my real life to go do this thing. And so that just started to like sink in. I'm like, I need to go do this. Um, so I invited one other person um, from my college who I don't know why he agreed to go with me, but he did. Um, and originally his wife was going to also go, go with us, but she got sick right before. So she drove a car behind us as we biked across and we raised 7,000 bucks for to build a child center in Guatemala as we did it. But yeah, cool. I just pretty much did it because I got on a bike and when I pedaled the bike, my brain said, let's do this. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was kind of my first big adventure where it was this massive experiment in trusting that things would work out over multiple days and that if you're doing good for humanity, human, humanity does good back to you. Um, sort of that test of faith, if you will. 
Um, and we would like reach out to churches and things as we went and be like, this is what we're doing. This is the cause we're doing it for. Do you guys have pews we could sleep on or someone in the church that would house us or a campground we could stay in? And every night of the whole trip, we ended up with some kind of accommodation. And so it was super rad, um, super rad trip. Um, but that's where, yeah, I discovered that I actually was pretty decent at pedaling a bike and that I enjoyed it quite a lot. So I ran some more road marathons for a while, but then the natural curiosity was, okay, how good of a biker can I be? Cause I didn't do, you know, I got very into running as a kid, but not really built to be a runner, kind of like I've described before. Yeah. Um, I, I weigh in at, you know, like upper 160s. Most good runners are like 120s to 130s. Um, I'd always outweigh my teammates by 20 to 30 pounds. Um, I have short stocky legs and a long torso and most good runners have a, have long legs and a short torso. <laughs> um, and so I discovered when I got on the bike, those thick muscular legs could crush big old gears in places that others had to like reach for their easy spinning gears. Um, so I explored that more and then the curiosity of, well, could I do a triathlon? Can I learn to swim? Cause I wasn't a great swimmer up until this point. I could kind of muddle my way through a few laps across a pool, but it looked like I was fighting the water more than I was swimming. And so it's like, okay, let's run a great experiment. Let's sign up for an Ironman triathlon. Cause you know, that's what you do when you're going to do a triathlon is you sign up for the biggest one available. Um, yeah. And had to Ignorance teach myself. Is bliss. To swim. <laughs> <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Indeed. So yeah, basically, you know, just, was the guy at the pool who was like, hey, what, what tips do you have for swimming? Hey, watch, would you watch me swim? Just to all the other swimmers, I'm sure they were annoyed at first. And then when they found out what I was doing, they all kind of got excited about it. And they're like, oh yeah, we'll help you out. So yeah, learned to swim, became a stronger biker, um, maintained my running and started running the experiment of how well can I do at these big triathlons? Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that, how that one flowed into the other. Um, just kind of naturally looking for the next the next curious exploration of, of my endurance of what can I do of what's available out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that everlasting fear behind me of sort of wasting my life or just ending up fat. Um, those are always, you know, right over the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And how much of those athletic pursuits and accomplishments were driven by like this desire to continuously like push yourself and get to that next level versus beating others and like competition versus looking ahead 30 years and basically like having no no regrets um for an oddly long time in my life uh you know like when i was younger people would call say i had like an old soul i was that type of person uh, who seemed to always be thinking beyond my years um maybe i finally caught up with myself now maybe i'm a bit immature i'm not sure um <laughs> <laughs> but one, uh, I, I definitely was powerful, have been powerfully motivated since being even a teenager by living a good story, living a worthwhile story, um, doing things that I'm proud of, where I can be proud of myself. And uh, a way I, I always used to phrase it and still do is um, living my life so that I end up at the end of life with a bunch of I'm so glad I dids instead of I wish I would have. And so when I find a goal that inspires me or scares me or best case scenario, both, then I know that's something that's going to be a, I'm so glad I did and I have to do it. Right. Um, so that end of life sort of 
contemplating mortality, contemplating what I'll, what I'll care about at the close of life is definitely a powerful motivator. I am a bit competitive, probably not as competitive as people think. I mean, I do like, you know, passing someone in the final legs of a race. Um, that is exhilarating and thrilling, but that seems secondary. And I love, I love the sensation of mastery. You know, that, that's why the triathlon became consuming for me is because there's this element of interplay between the different sports where, you know, finding that fine line where anytime you, you know, you, you could trade going a little harder in one and you were, it was going to end up slowing you up in the other, but is the payout greater than the cost? Um, and learning to like run that fine line to have an optimal performance in all three events in a given day was, was a great curiosity and a great experiment. And the days when it all came together was just such a phenomenal feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I remember having to hold back tears on my first Ironman 70.3 as I was closing out the final three miles, realizing like, this is it. This is finally the one where like I swam right in the ballpark of what the best swim I could do was. I biked even better than my expectations. And here I am running to my exact expectations of what I thought I could possibly do. Um, and like having to like fight back the tears. And then finally, as I crossed the finish line, them just kind of coming gushing out like, this is it, I did it. And, you know, it, it added to the sweetness that I also qualified for my first um, 70.3 world championship in that same event with that. But, oh, cool. but the, the tears came flowing just from the fact that it's like, oh, my God, I finally did it. Like this, this was a race that I dreamed I could do, but hadn't actualized yet. Um, so that's always been a, a very powerful motivator. And that might even harken all the way back to, like I said, being the little skater kid that would just try a trick over and over and over again. And then that moment you finally get it after 2000 tries, you're like, yeah, who saw that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely a mixture. It's definitely a combination. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as, you know, like I said, there's always that like fear in the background. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge those. Like one of the things I realized as a kid that was sort of a first conscious decision that I remember where it's like oh I don't want to end up like my parents like this because you know as a kid you just love your parents and then you start to reach an age where you have your first sort of like well I don't want to be like them like this and I get that there were two, <laughs> there were two things that, st that stick out distinctly is this moment where my dad came home super stressed from work and I was like I never want to be so stressed out that I can't truly treat the people I say I love with love like whatever I do in life I always want to be able to come to the people I say I love and show them affection and calmness and kindness. Um, Cause he would struggle with a temper when he got home from a really hard day of work. And then the other thing was he kind of let himself go and got to be very overweight and would constantly kind of be tired. Um, and I'm like, Oh, I don't want that. I remember just like having this kind of visceral feeling of like, I don't want that. I, I want to be able to like move and play and do cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so even to this day, those are still like over my shoulder, like little motivators. And I, I feel like I'm so far away from, from that lifestyle, but I like to keep them close because I think it, it keeps the drive strong. Yeah. Yeah, sure. what did your dad do for work? Uh, he owns an HVAC business. So small business okay. owner and good, hard manual labor, <laughs> installing and air conditioners in people's yeah. houses. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. 
Um, and uh, just out of curiosity, where was the uh, where was that Ironman race that you um, like did really well in? That would have been 2014 Calgary, Canada. Okay, I'm thinking about doing a 70.3 uh, this year. So, um, if you have any recommendations, maybe we can chat offline. Absolutely, yeah, I, I would gladly do that. Awesome. So everything's going smoothly with the, with the Ironmans and the the marathons and, and a lot of sort of stuff. But then 2015, I read something pretty significant happened. Significant happened, which is that car accident, right? Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's it's about as stark of a contrast as you get. Um, and like obviously, as I'm doing these 70.3s, I also qualified in a race just a little bit later um, at Lake Stevens, Washington. I qualified for the 2015 World Championships because um, the Ironman calendar year flips over in like August or something. So in a matter of three weeks, I qualified for two separate world championships. So just like rolling, right? Like just like mm -hmm. boom, boom, boom. I'm, I'm killing it. Like all this hard work is finally paying off. I'm accomplishing these huge goals. Um, and then that momentum rolls into um, my winter and I have like the best training winter. Like in February, I logged 101 hours of, of like training time um, in the shortest <laughs> month of the year. Um, so just like killing it going into 2015 and feeling stronger than I ever have, um, on Sunday, on the first Sunday in May, I went out for a 140 mile bike ride and got off the bike and went for a jog and felt like my legs just felt normal. Like I hadn't even done anything that day. Just like going, Oh man, this is the year. I'm going to be able to actually truly race a full Ironman because I finished full Ironman, but I always hold a distinction in my mind. There's a difference between finishing and racing. Um, there's a, a sure. difference between when you can be aggressive start to finish, trying to actually like push yourself to your best and, you know, pass as many people as you can and perform versus mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm dead, but I'm just going <laughs> to grind it out. To the finish yeah. Line. Like a suffer fest. Uh, exactly. There's a distinct difference between those two. And so I'd finished full iron, but I'd never truly raced it. And I was like, oh man, this is it. Like I finally put in the work and I'm going to make that transition. I'm going to sign up for a full iron this year and I'm going to be able to truly race start to finish. And so that was on Sunday. On Tuesday, rolled my vehicle, ejected from the car, broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, broke my shoulder in two places and shredded the LCL and ACL of my right knee spent I think 10 days in the emergency room. Um, they had to like get my lung reinflated and I obviously had to have a massive surgery on my knee to uh, replace the LCL and ACL. Yeah, so it, I mean, I guess the starkest way to contrast it is on uh, Sunday I went for a 140 mile bike ride and felt like it didn't even phase me. And on Wednesday I couldn't get my own fucking drink of water. And that's, that's a, that's a pretty big, to put it bluntly, like mindfuck, right? Like to go from feeling invincible to like being utterly helpless. And, you know, that's a lot to absorb in like the snap of your fingers. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was a pretty challenging setback for sure. Yeah. And how, how did the rollover happen? It was a, a case of like a day where I was stacked with a bunch of responsibilities. Um, so like I taught my whole teaching day and then the other coach didn't show up to coach track. So I coached the whole team kind of solo, which is, you know, more stressful when you're trying to like do everybody's workouts 
And then I had a meeting back in town that I'd signed up to be like a representative for my school at. Um, and I like practice had gone long. So I was like kind of stressing and rushing. Um, and I realized I was like in this stressed out state and I'm like, I got to chill out for this meeting. Like I'm going to be in the same room as the superintendent, you know? <laughs> and so reached down to plug in, uh, my phone to my aux cord, you know, cause we still had to do that back then, at least uh. to be on the old car <laughs> like I did. And when I went, reached down to grab it, I just caught the shoulder and rolled the vehicle off the road. Wow. Just like a simple, stupid mistake. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So as you were recovering, getting treated, um, getting evaluated by doctors, did some, like, did you ever get a doctor telling you that you wouldn't be able to ever do like these endurance type races and events ever again? One of the... One of the very first doctors I talked to, uh, obviously being so passionate about this, and this had been such a theme in my life, like the concern over it like bubbled up um, almost immediately, right? As it would for any of us um, with something we love. And, you know, I voiced this to the doctor. I'm like, I love doing these endurance things. I love triathlons and, and running. And he just bluntly, like no, no miss, not even missing a beat, just bluntly replies, oh, you're probably gonna have to let that part of your life go. Just and then like walks out of the room um wow. needless to say he didn't stay my doctor for very long um <laughs> but uh also i mean i remember like going through the emotions like any sort of moment by moment and like initially like feeling as my mind contemplated a version of myself going out into the future where all of the things that i'd loved that had been a part of my life weren't there anymore like I didn't like it <laughs> to put it simply um and like it felt like a huge loss but then in like the very next second it was like no you don't know who i am like like i've 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 been willing to put in far too much work to do things that people told me i wouldn't be able to do for far too long that that this is not going to stop me and right. you know kind of in that moment that rebellious sort of spirit kicked in like i'll show you <laughs> the, the, the skater you. yeah he didn't, he didn't uh, stay my doctor any longer was another way I showed him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So the thought, the thought of giving up that lifestyle really never, never really crossed your mind. No, I mean, I mean it, it, at that age, at 25 years old, when, you know, you're supposed to be sort of in your prime and getting the strongest you, you, you ever do. It was just like, man, there's no way that I'm just going to like hang up the shoes and call it quits right now. Um, like I'm going to find a way through this. And, and I was kind of willing, like there's a, a part of me obviously that embraced, like I might not ever be the same, um, like completely embrace that, but I'm like, I'm going to get back to doing some version of what I love. I will not settle for anything less. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what led to me having the recovery that I had. Um, Cause I almost immediately like dug deep into the rehab, I, uh, the moment they let me out of the hospital, I was hitting the pool and swimming more miles than I ever had, even with, you know, the two breaks in my shoulder and the nine broken ribs that would hurt every stroke. Um, and it was just like, well, I mean, you're not going to make those things worse. They're going to heal exactly the same. It's just going to be painful every time you move them. Um, so I just started swimming more. It's probably still to this day the most miles I've swam in a, in a week was that week out of the hospital and started digging into the, the you know, stretching exercises and the rehab exercises for the knee 
got got back on the bike as soon as I could. And, you know, even though like one leg was doing like, I, I got a friend bought me one of those power meters that were just coming out back then that did the dual sides, like how much power is coming from each leg. Yeah. And I was doing like between 70 and 80% at first from my uninjured leg and like 20 to 30%. Um, and so just started going, well, whatever, like it's still keeping my cardio strong. It's still like keeping my heart strong. So I'm not losing ground. So I'm just going to do what I can and just found basically everything I could that I could add back into my life to like keep moving forward and recover and stay sort of maintain some of that existing fitness. Yeah. And then I started, uh, you know, because as a PE teacher, I had to take some biomechanics courses. So okay. I was kind of aware that when you walk up and down steep hills, you don't need the same biomechanical range. You don't need the same range of motion in your knee as you do when you're trying to run. Because when we run efficiently, there's a moment where our knee straightens that allows us to push off and use that elastic energy that gets stored in our Achilles tendon. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not able to straighten your knee, you basically lose all of that elastic energy, um, which is what makes humans efficient runners. So um, all I could do is like limp along, um, like lope along with like, uh, it was almost looked like I had a wooden leg or something like a peg leg, like, and then it would start hurting and swell up. And I, I forget how many months out that was that I started doing that maybe two or three months, I would go out and do like little goes of pushing myself. But yeah, so I started hiking up and down hills, hills led to bigger hills led to mountains led to bigger mountains. Pretty soon I started encountering mountains that had like rock climbing moves at the top. So it's like, well, guess I need to become a rock climber so that I can face these, you know, obstacles when I come to them. And that started the process of me like accumulating skills to be an alpinist and, and uh, to be strong in the outdoors. So again, just kind of that, that same mindset of like, well, what's the thing I can do? What can I get better at? How can I add to this skill set to open up more opportunity? And can I get good at this? You know, those, that same like sense of mastery and sense of curiosity that made right. me good at the endurance sports in the first place. Right. Right. Um, you know, obviously before this accident happened, you were all, you were still very passionate about living a life, like a meaningful life without really having any regrets at the end of it. Like did this accident re um, that, that accident must have reinforced that just even more so like tripled it, quadrupled that, that kind of, that sort of passion. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, absolutely. Right. Cause uh, one of, one thing another doctor said to me in the emergency room uh, was, was like, Oh yeah. If you were like a typical 40 year old male, you probably would have suffocated on the side of the road before we got to you. Um, you know, cause like one of my lungs had been, you know, deflated and the other one had like contusions in it. So it's kind of that like, oh, okay. Like, I mean, you could think of it one way. Like I traded my world championship Ironman fitness for a get out of death free card. Right. So it's like a second lease huh. on life, as they say. So of course it reinforced this idea that it's like, man, at any moment, you know, we tend to try to think of things as like nouns or status that we have like, Oh, I am this, I am an Ironman athlete. I am a world championship. It's like, no, you're not. That's not, that's what you do. And maybe right. you do it well, but it is not who you are at any moment. That's gone. Um, snap of a fingers, one, one wild occurrence and it's gone. Um, and it reinforced that sense of like, all we truly have is our vision that motivates us and compels us forward and gives us meaning and purpose. And 
are, are, are the, the verbs we use to get there, the actions we use, the process, right? That's, that's all we ever have. And so it was a, a powerful reminder of that. And like, that was the very process mentally by which I went through the recovery. Cause you know, it's really easy when you face any major setback in life to sort of live in your own shadow for lack of a better way of saying it, like comparing yourself to your previous self. To this day, I still refer to everything I did before the car accident as my former life. Like there's a hard mental division I've created that allows me to not sort of compare myself directly with my performances back then. And I did that very intentionally at the, at the outset of the recovery. Cause I'm like, I can't, cause I noticed this, like, I can't be like thinking about how far I am from where I used to be. I just need to fall in love with the process of getting better again. I need to be able to celebrate every little win instead of seeing those little wins as like a, well, yeah, but I'm still not anywhere near where I was. Right. Because yeah, yeah. when we're celebrating things, when we're, when we're getting that dopamine reward response from even little progress, that's going to build motivation and compound and sort of domino into continued progress. If we're always like demotivating ourselves at every little step, there's no way you're going to sustain, sustain that over time. You're going to burn yourself out. Um, so staying in sort of this mindset of being excited about, oh, this is as much as I've ever bent my knee since the accident. All right. This is as far as I've walked without it swelling since the accident. Oh, I was able to jog a little today. Um, you know, all these just things that would have been like taken for granted, you know, like not even thought about because they were so minuscule to the big picture of where I was, um, as an Ironman athlete became real again, like noticing them and seeing the progress in them. Which is, right. you know, it's, it's that great reminder. Like, that's how we get there in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't lose sight of, of the process that gets you to anywhere you want to go. Um, and think that you were that thing without that process. And so, again, it reinforced, like I said, that, that we want to have a vision for where we want to go. And then we just want to, like, execute on the process, live the verbs. Um, my friend always likes to say vision and verbs. And that's, that's, that's what really in, in the moment, subjectively, it's a happier experience too. You know, you think about the difference between a person that's constantly like living in their own shadow and how they talk about themselves and how they talk about a moment to moment experience. And you think about a person who is getting excited for both their own progress and other people's progress, you know, getting almost giddy about it, like a little kid, um, like they're clearly way happier. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's like an important reminder for all of us, for sure. So it, it definitely redoubled my, I want to live a life that means something. I want to chase big goals. I want to do things that inspire me and, and make me proud of the life I've lived. Because, I mean, at any moment, I could just be dead and it's over. And what was it all for? Right. Um, so it definitely makes me, it reinforces this desire to just chase things often and chase things hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And, you know, a lot of ultra competitive type A people, whether it's like athletes or, you know, entrepreneurs um, experience the same thing. A lot of the time it's in getting wrapped up in, or their identity gets wrapped up in their company or the athlete's identity gets wrapped up in their, you know, athletic endeavors. Were you conscious about making sure that didn't happen to you? before the accident i i had started to because i i obviously any athlete who pushes themselves as hard as i was especially through college um where i was like 
running the red line on my body like every practice. Like you get injuries and when you're conceptualizing yourself, and, and we do this in our culture very often, we say things like, oh, I am a runner. Right. It's like, well, no, you're not. Running is the behavior. It's what you're using to express yourself. It's like, I like to think of it like the medium an artist chooses to paint with, right? Um, so they might, they might choose to paint or they might do clay, but they're still an artist. And the art comes from something deeper, a desire to create. And so I realized, okay, I'm not a runner. I'm a driven, passionate, creative person. I'm a, I'm a person who loves to face challenge and, and, and see growth and, and, and master that growth. And I just choose to do it through these endurance sports. And so I kind of started to become aware of the importance of like that distinction in your own language toward yourself, um, just from those smaller injuries. And mm -hmm. this big setback definitely like drove that home all the way. And I mean, even prior to the car accident, I would jokingly allude to this distinction between what you do and who you are. Um, because, you know, whenever, you know, at some point in your life, someone's like, well, what would you do if you lost your legs? It's like, well, when I came to in the hospital, I would shop for racing wheelchairs. Um, <laughs> like, to me, it's like, I know that's what I would do. Like, sure, there would be shock, sure, there would be emotions. But one of the ways I would navigate those emotions is, this is my next step forward. I'm going to purchase a, a racing wheelchair. And right. that will be the way I express myself. Because mm. I know I'm not just going to want to sit around. <laughs> um, so I think, I think having those sorts of understandings about yourself make, make a big difference in how you handle setbacks. That like, even, if, even if your business fails, even if your athletic endeavor fails, it's like you're still that same passionate, driven, creative person. And you're still going to find a way to continue to express that and move forward. And since you never really owned anything in the first place, it was all just on borrowed time anyways, um, the whole nouns and verbs things. It's like all you ever had anyways was your process. So just go back to your process. And if you can improve your process, do it. But um, that's, that's, that's what we have is what we can do in any given moment. And outside of that, it's all just um, perceptions of ownership. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, you know, everyone's traumatic experiences are different in some way or another, but like generally speaking, how do you think others can prepare themselves? Um, I don't know if that's the right, like phrase or terminology to use, like in a way that they'll be able to um, like not get crushed by their traumatic experience, whether it's a car accident or, or something else, but able be able to, like you did, like accelerate out of it. Well, I mean, people a lot smarter than me have said, if you want to strengthen your why, if you want to strengthen your re resolve, contemplate your own death. Contemplating mortality has been a huge part of wisdom and philosophy um, throughout many, you know, even ancient cultures. I think we tend to shy away from trying to think about death and the ceasing of our own existence. In, in modern culture, we seem to be very addicted to comfort as an end-all be-all of life, that the goal is to have the reliable, nice car that impresses your friends and gets you social acceptance and have a warm, safe house in a good part of town, and that when you achieve that, you've arrived. But humans, like, you have, a, you have parts of your brain that allow you to experience instincts and emotions, whether good or bad, for a reason. And if you live not ever stimulating those parts of the brain. So you, you can bet that like stuff is going to start to go sideways, whether it's depression or mental health or, you know, feeling a lack of meaning in life or whatever it might be. 
Um, and I think that's one of the reasons we throw ourselves into these situations um, where, you know, someone with a very happy, stable job and a happy, stable home will like take up mountaineering and go get massively uncomfortable and cold on mountains because there's some sense in us that we know if we're going to be healthy, we, we have to be more rounded. We can't just chase that comfort. So I think if you embrace discomfort as the path, then when you face a massive discomfort, it's going to come a little bit easier. And I mean, I don't want to downplay serious traumas in any way, but embracing discomfort and embracing suffering was a regular habit of my pursuit of these goals. And there was, there was a conscious understanding, like almost a decision even really that it's like, if, if I can see progress toward my goal, however small, regardless of how high the perceived effort is, regardless of how much pain I experience, if I continue to see progress, I don't give up. Right. And that ties back into understanding your why and, and strengthening your why, whether that's, you know, contemplating your own mortality or contemplating what you care to see yourself do in the world. Because if you have a strong why that turns the have to's in life, things you like, Oh, I have to do this into things you want to do because they right. serve that bigger vision. And if you're in a want to mindset, then when you face setbacks, it allows you to either approach them with curiosity. If you're not seeing progress, you're going to get curious to try to solve the problem or perseverance if you do see progress. And that's just mechanically like how it works. Like when you navigate frustration, if you're in a have to mindset and you, and you face frustration because you're thinking about it as something you just have to do, it's not, it doesn't serve any greater purpose to your vision, then your only options for exiting frustration are either surrender, giving up, or getting really angry. And I mean, those do work for some things. Like if you're starving and you're trying to get a coconut out of a tree and you like get really angry because you haven't gotten it down and you, that rage fills you and you shake the tree super hard, that might get you the coconut. <laughs> um, but in most of modern society, it's not really going to serve much of a quality purpose. Um, curiosity and perseverance uh, serve us much better. But those, yeah, again, you know, circle back only can be accessed if you're in, in a want to mindset. The only way you can want something is if it fits into that picture of what are your goals, what do you dream about, what do you want to actualize, mm -hmm. um, what, what is it that empowers you, what's your high sense of value in the world. So I think, I think having an understanding of those things and like laying a framework of what you care to see yourself do, um, having a target in life, even if it's a blurry target and some bright lines, some rules that you know are going to keep you moving toward that target, um, and that the discomforts you face, the discomforts you face are part of the journey. And yeah, uh, what is it? Um, I forget the name of the author, but the book, um, The Art of Not Giving a Fuck, they, the author lays out the premise, to desire a life without problems, it, like that's a waste, that's not possible. Instead, seek yeah. out the problems that are worth having. So like kind of having that same mindset toward, toward this sort of thing, like, okay, I'm going to face hard setbacks, but I might as well try to have them be setbacks that are moving me towards something I care about because they're going to happen anyways. Yeah. It's so guaranteed. I, might as well, I might as well be overcoming them for a good reason instead of like, well, I just have to, even though I hate my job. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the suffering is guaranteed. So you better, 
I better enjoy what you're doing. Suffer for something good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. So how long um, was the total recovery time before you're back to like, quote unquote, normal? Um, I mean, I don't want anyone to mistake that I'm just like normal again. I wake up and like the, the side of my body that got smashed up the worst. Sometimes it feels like it's 60 years old and I'm like listing off to that side and I have to do oh, wow. like, you know, body care techniques to like kind of work out the wrinkles and the kinks. But as far as the road to like getting back to somewhat like normal movement and not having like flare ups and like where it would swell up to the size of a grapefruit with my knee um, and getting back to where my breathing was somewhat normal, even with the damage to my lungs. Um, really, I would say it was right around the two year mark, just like they tell you right around the two year mark. I finally could get back to like jogging without, uh, you know, intense pain or like massive uh, swelling flare ups. Um, I mean, well before that, uh, I mentioned that I qualified for the 2015 world championships, which are held at the end of September. Um, those ones were in Austria and I went and I finished that race. It was like a huge, so what, five months, a bit over five months after the car accident. And so I went there and I, I swam because obviously I'd, I knew I could swim because I'd been swimming more than I ever had. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm like, oh, okay, I can still do that. Just dragging the bad leg behind me. And then, yeah, still biking with about 65% of my power to 70% of my power coming out of my good leg, um, biked the whole bike course and basically limped my way through the entire half marathon run um, on, you know, the one good leg. That leg was like so sore afterwards because it had yeah, done like I can all imagine. Um, but to me, it was like, even though, you know, my doctors did not clear me to travel internationally, did not clear me to like. <laughs> go do stuff like that i'm like this i may never qualify for another world championship again and if i work my ass off to go be able to do this and do this and get to that finish line like that's like reclaiming that personal power right that authority over the direction of my life and so yeah i've got that i got that metal hanging behind me right here front and center oh, very um, cool. <laughs> so yeah it's a it's a powerful a powerful reminder to me of navigating through a very difficult phase of life yeah i think i got off on a tangent there but i hope i answered your question <laughs> yeah no, no, no that was great um yeah how did your bot how much how did your body feel after that iron man like i said pretty painful like it hurt the entire way through i mean i guess it didn't feel terrible on the swim and it didn't feel terrible on the bike because those are kind of no impact but every single step was a conscious reminder that my body was not fully healed yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, it was an exercise in perseverance, um, through that whole thing, you know, and it was, it, and it was cool. I, I assume, you know, like the, the athletes around me had no clue. Obviously they just assumed like, Oh, he must've like twisted something or like he's cramping up. Um, but it was really cool to hear other, you know, championship level, you know, athletes as they were going by me like oh you got this just keep going it'll it'll iron out you know, so people were like super positive which lets you know i wasn't in last place which is um <laughs> kind of cool i actually had a i had a surprisingly good bike time biking with 70 percent of my power coming out of my good leg um a surprisingly good bike time i think it was in the out of i think they let 2000 roughly competitors into the race and i think i was in the top 300 bike times at you know the wow world championship 70.3 events so like i the bike time blew me away that i was able to produce that with so many injuries but yeah then the run was like 
just a limp walk right. <laughs> the whole way. And so all those people who managed to end up behind me got to pass me and I finished near the very back. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was a, it was an amazing experience and I definitely was very sore, very sore and stuff was swollen and hurt after that. Um, and then I went to being more kind to myself with the rest of my recovery. Um, <laughs> but still disciplined with, you know, seeing how it's like, I have, to, I like, not that I have to, you know, to catch my own words, but like, I want to do everything right. Cause I want to do more of this stuff. Mm. And so, yeah, then I would say the next like super big breakthrough wasn't until like that two year mark where stuff kind of started to be like, Oh, I could just go out. I can go out for a 10 mile jog. Sure. I'm not as fast as I used to be but I can go out for a 10 mile jog and like, it's just the normal kind of hurt that I would feel after a 10 mile jog. It's not like my knee is a grapefruit or something. So yeah, that was kind of the next kind of the, like where I knew, okay, I can start doing more big things. And that actually is what led to me getting into do, doing like big, cause I, uh, over this time I'd accumulated these two years, I'd accumulated these rock climbing skills and rope skills and glacier travel skills and all this stuff. Cause I was just hiking in the mountains all the time. That was my new obsession, my new thing I wanted to master. Yeah. And so now as this ability to run and this mental perception, cause you know, as an ultra runner, you end up with this perception of distance that's way different than most hikers or mountaineers where it's like, Oh, 10 miles is short. Even if you're climbing 7,000 feet, that's still short. And so I started doing these big link-ups of like, oh, I'm going to climb these three rad technical peaks and run the trail in between them, which kind of set me up to be ready for kind of the FKT stuff when I discovered it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Awesome. And now let's get into the, uh, the FKT stuff. So I guess before we get into, I guess, your, your saga, um, let's define a couple terms for people listening who don't know what FKTs are. So what is an FKT and like, how do they work? So an FKT is a, it's a, like, you think of it like a somewhat informal record, even though they, they do get double checked. Um, it stands for fastest known time. Um, there's a website, fastestknowntime.com that has a team of people who uh, both accept different routes um, that people propose um, and then also look over the data and the pictures of the people who want to claim the record on those routes. They're a little different for those on this that use Strava. They're a little different than Strava segments and that like a Strava segment can be from like your mailbox to the post office. These are things that kind of one of the, the essence of it is it needs to be something that when other people see it, they're going to want to repeat it. So, you know, big mountain ridge linkups and ascent times on mountains and big named trail systems. Um, from end to end. Um, those are all things that hold FKTs. Okay. Um, so they're like a curated, a curated race course that you submit your GPS data and pictures to get accepted, your time accepted on. Interesting. So would like the Appalachian Trail be like an FKT potentially? It does, it does have an FKT. So does okay. the Pacific Crest Trail and the um, I think the Colorado Divide Trail, so all three major trails. And then I think there's actually an FKT for all three of those trails, the fastest time anyone's hmm. done all three of them continuously. 
Um, so like they can get, they can get massively long. I think that's like <laughs> 7,200 miles. So they can get incredibly long. And then there's, um, one that I can think of that's 2.6 miles long, but it's through like a technical Canyon where you're like sliding down these chimneys and doing these crazy rock climbing moves. And you're just sprinting as fast as you can through this thing, like an obstacle course. Hmm. So they, there's a huge variety in them, but they need to be something that's classic and unique and worth repeating. Interesting. Okay. And what inspired you to want to do these in the first place? I mean, it was already something I was in love with. Um, even when I was just still climbing mountains and was first getting into climbing mountains after the accident, I would, the feeling you get when you summit like a 14,000 foot volcano and there's the world just falls away around you. And you're, you it's like, even still, I look up at like Mount Shasta here in, uh, you know right south of me in northern california and like as i drive by it i'm like did i really climb that thing have i really climbed that thing more than 20 times now hmm. and there's this surrealness to it and i would I, I would say like all my medals all my medals for for those moments like those moments are so rich and so full when you endure all of the setbacks all of the cold all of the challenge all of the 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 physical fatigue um the thin air your, your heart beating in your chest, thinking right. you're not going to make it, wondering if the weather's going to turn on you, like all these different doubts that go through your mind on this journey to the top of the mountain. It's just like life, really. And then you, you, you manage to get through all that, all those low points, and you make it to the summit, and you get rewarded the, with this amazing view and this amazing memory of yourself pushing your body against this beautiful challenge that's available in nature. Like that, as poetic as it sounds, that's how I feel when I'm out there. And to me, like when I take it super easy, like if I go super casually and slow, it's not the same richness of experience. Cause I don't, I don't get to feel as though I've emptied myself and pushed myself to my very best in that space of nature to face the challenges it had, whether it's a Canyon or a rock climb or a mountain climb, there's just this, this deep sense of satisfaction that comes when I know like, that was an incredible challenge and I gave my very best on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, at the root of what drives my FKTs is this love of that very personal experience out in the space, in, in those spaces. And I kind of had this awareness about myself. Obviously I've described how I'm not built like a, a true fast runner. Um, but that stockier, more muscular build does make me more resilient to injury. So I know I've throughout my life, I've been able to like put hard efforts kind of back to back to back and get injured way less than most people. Um, you know, a lot of my, you know, much faster teammates, like if they did a few too many like fast workouts in a week, they would end up with a you know major injury. And, you know, me, I was out there like pushing myself relatively um, to my body's max, like, quite quite a bit harder and you know only got injured a few seasons of of my year of my of my college career rather um so i kind of knew this about myself like oh i tend to be able to go out there and like rip hard on my body and do massive volume uh whether it's miles or gain and my body kind of wakes up the next day and goes well i hurt but whatever um i'm not injured i just hurt <laughs> and there's a difference between those two yeah um and so i kind of was aware all right I have a body that's resilient, not that fast, but resilient. And then 
I've always known that I race, uh, even when I was racing, I raced too often to ever have like a truly optimal performance. Cause I always okay. wanted to be out there in the fray of it. Right. Like I loved, I loved being out in the experience of pushing myself as hard as I could. And so because of those two propensities, the ability to push myself often without injury and the constant desire to be out there anyways, it became apparent to me like, Oh, like I can go out and start creating these beautiful FKT routes, like really aesthetic routes in very difficult places with big miles. And I can just go out and do them on like back to back weekends. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'll end up injured or maybe it'll be like it's been before where my body just kind of absorbs it and goes, yeah, I'm tired. And yeah, I hurt, but we're okay. And as I started to do that more and more and like get the sort of thrill and exhilaration of like being able to apply your creativity um, cause when you pay for a race, sort of what you're paying for is the race director to handle all that creativity and logistics for you, right? Like they're going to mark the course. They're going to put water and food along the course at aid stations. They're going to, you know, make sure you don't end up anywhere dangerous and they're going to have ways for you to be rescued if you need to stop. So like all your logistics, that's what you're paying for so that you can show up and just focused on the variable of your fitness. FKTs are the opposite, where you take all that back on yourself. You, you have to know your route and know how to know whether you're on route or off route. Right. You have to plan where you're going to get water and, and what you're going to do for food and where your entries and exits are, um, what you're going to do if something goes wrong. Like all that's back on your shoulders. And for me, I loved that. I loved that, that it's like now I get to make these things that are challenging and difficult for myself and for other people to come, you know, follow after me. And that creative process, that's probably my favorite part as well um, of, of my efforts being FKTs. Like the experiences in nature by itself is a powerful enough motivator, but then as far as why an FKT instead of just going out there and never telling anyone, the creative process of like leaving something very challenging behind for other humans to perhaps be inspired by, that, that gets me stoked. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so, so then it became this process of like, as I started doing more and more, it's like, well, what, you know, how far am I from the leader? And like, what if I just go do like a hundred of these things? You know, people like silly round numbers for whatever silly reason. Like, how would I just try to go for 100 <laughs> FKTs? Nobody's ever done it before. Um, and kind of that, there was this knowledge that's like as silly and arbitrary as this goal is, when I finish it, it will mean a few things. It will mean that I've gone and created a hundred different amazing memories doing surreal, beautiful things and getting to have those experiences I've described how much I like. It, and it will mean that I've probably had to grow as an athlete because you can't just go, you know, do the like two mile trail in your backyard over and over again. It's like you have to go face new things to invent a new route or to take on someone else's route that's been created. Um, and oftentimes that means either applying skills that you already have in a new context or even learning new skills. Like I wasn't a canyoneer uh, before I was an FKT or like over the course of doing so many of these FKTs, I discovered that there was a bunch of canyon FKTs available and a bunch of canyons that hadn't been turned into FKTs that were of the right style and safety level to become FKTs. But they involved a skill set that was new to me. Like I kind of understood it because of rock climbing but it's a very different expression of those skills. Um, so this journey toward 100 has already succeeded in that goal and that 
I've become a whole new outdoorsman and a whole new athlete because of what I've come to see and had to face as I was out there in the field, sort of living this thing out in real time. Interesting. And how close are you to a hundred? I am at 93 currently. Oh, wow. Very close. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been, it's been a long road, but yeah, yeah, it feels, if it does feel super close now. Yeah. Um, are you saving like one particular, like do you have like one route in mind that you're saving for like the hundredth? I actually was having multiple conversations and collecting beta and link up ideas for the biggest project I've ever taken on yet. It involves um, 100 different peaks um, as one single FKT. <laughs> it's it's how it, from the time you leave the first trailhead to the time you finish the last one and return to its trailhead, um, the time runs continuously. Okay. And only, I'm not even I'm not even sure the number of people who even, who have even completed it. Uh, just like doing it over the course of a lifetime. Um, but it's kind of one of those like lifetime tick lists where people will spend, you know, 900 days doing it or, you know, whole chunks of their life doing it. And one person has done it in 410 days. Um, but kind of my, my goal for it is to try to do, try to average a peak a day at least or faster. And so it's kind of, it would be kind of a huge breakthrough for the route. Um, and it would be this test piece of my logistics. It's already testing my logistical planning skills way more than any route has. It's going to be a test of endurance because I'm going to have to go link these massive days in dangerous terrain um, and kind of just finish one up and like go to bed and wake up the next day and just go right out and do another. And so it's really going to push a variety of my skills. There's rock climbing on it. There's glacier travel on it. So you've got to have both of those skill sets. Um, there's logistics with like a, a border crossing where if the border's still closed, you have to figure out how to charter a boat to get into these super remote peaks and then climb them in a way that only one other person has a report of ever climbing them. So it's like this really interesting challenge um, intellectually and it will be physically as well to actually execute it. So I'm trying to become the first person to do it in like a continuous push without like, cause the, the person who did it and currently has the record was working a job. And so had to go back and forth between their job and doing the mountains. And I think it's a worthy route, absolutely a worthy route to have someone just show up and from, you know, day one to the end, not go home. And I'm hoping that my scholastic summer is long enough and that nothing goes wrong like with a you know a fire breaking out in the area or anything like that right. that i'm able to just continuously like push them one peak after another until they're done um and so i was actually i was actually building that and, and mapping it um right before i got on this call <laughs> <laughs> wow that's uh that, that's really cool and i feel like for something like that the like the amount of time that it'll take to do it was much more be determined by how well the logistics or how well you get the logistics down rather than like how quickly you climb or something like that. Is that right? Is that right? I mean, yes, yes. And no, I think it is a huge logistical thing, like figuring out 
And that's one of the fun parts about it is figuring out the most efficient lines to like, you know, does it make more sense to do a loop on these peaks? Uh, can the ridge between these peaks actually be like climbed along or is it too dangerous? Um, how much risk are you willing to accept? Where should I go solo? Where should I have a partner for safety? Um, should I do the peaks in a straight line and get picked up at a different place or should I loop back? Um, there's all these different questions and I want to try to solve them in the most efficient way, but the place fitness comes in is if I keep my fitness up strong and I'm able to run in places where most people walk and I'm able to like climb quickly in places where most people have to slow way down, then that means I can bag like bigger pushes during daylight hours in dangerous terrain and potentially okay. link up, you know, eight peaks in a day where someone else might only get through five. Okay. Um, so that starts to really add up. Um, if you do that consistently day after day where you've linked more peaks than anyone ever has, and you can like endure the descent and the climb up to a different red ridge line to like get even more of them that same day. Um, it unlocks options that most people wouldn't be able to do because they'd have to carry more weight and like a sleeping kit um, to try to attempt the same thing. I see. Okay. And like, how, how would you like typically prepare for like a long mountainous FKT? Like I would imagine you might have to like go and explore the route like beforehand. Um, yeah. Almost always if, if there's a technical element um, like if it's just, if it's a straightforward thing where I can read the route description and I understand that it's well within my skill sets, then I'll, I'll show up and just give it a go. Okay. Um, but if there's any aspect of it where I feel it's approaching the limits, um, and I set pretty hard rules for myself around the things I allow myself to do and, and don't allow myself to do when I'm solo, especially if it's starting to approach those, then it's like, okay, I'm going to show up and go look at this part, walk out and check this part out first. Um, or have a way to protect it. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting part with this route is there's not going to be, it's going to be very difficult to get out and like kind of do pre-runs on very much of it. So I'm having to lean, and this is kind of a cool part about it as well. I'm having to lean into the community of people who have done them and just ask a ton of questions and like map their answers, like what's dangerous, what's fast, what, which peaks can be linked, which peaks can't be linked and then trust that they're giving me good information so that then I can assess that against my skill set and be like, okay, this person describes themselves as having a low risk tolerance and they say, don't go here. But then this person describes themselves with a higher risk tolerance and they said, oh yeah, I did it solo. And like kind of trying to like walk that line and right. gauge where I'll be as I'm out there. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of considerations that go into it. But yeah, most of the time, with prior routes, um, I've rehearsed the pieces of the route before putting it together. Okay, interesting. What's the hardest FKT you've done? You've done so far. I would say the hardest one that I did um, because it already had a pretty strong time on it, and it was bigger than anything I'd ever done. Um, it was kind of a big breakthrough for me. Was the um, Rainier Infinity Loop, which is 137 miles. It's a trip up over the top of Rainier down the other side, which is for those who don't know, it's a 14,000 foot volcano. Um, and then once you get to the other side, you run on the Wonderland trail, which is a trail that circumnavigates the whole mountain. That's 93 miles long. You run half of that back around to where you started, go up over the mountain a second time, 
and then run the other half of that 93 mile trail um, back around to where you started. And then when you get back the second time is when your time stops. And the previous record had been two days, 11 hours. And I believe I did it in two days and seven hours. So there was, <laughs> you know, facing sleep deprivation. I think I slept 90 minutes the first night and Jeez. then didn't sleep at all. Uh, like a 20 minute dirt nap, literally like right on the trail um, the second night. <laughs> So like pushing my sleep deprivation, covering the longest I'd ever gone was like 101 miles prior. So I was going 37, 36 miles longer than I ever had. Um, plus it's a heinous amount of elevation gain. I think it's like 44,000 feet of elevation <laughs> gain um, when you're all said and done with the effort, which is way more than I'd ever done in a, in a continuous push. Um, so I think to this day, that's still the hardest one I've ever done because there were so many unique elements because uh, for those who don't know, Mount Rainier is a very glaciated um, volcano. So you're doing glacier travel and like dealing with crevasses and, um, and all that as you go over the top. And then the Wonderland Trail isn't exactly a piece of cake trail either. It's pretty steep and up and down and, and rocky. Um, so there's not really a part of it that's just a gimme. Um, doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> Man. I've heard like st like stories from other ultra runners like uh, who've done like hundred mile plus races like they'll like they've like hallucinated like did that did you get any like hallucinations when you're doing while you're doing that absolutely they're and they're kind of subtle um, it's just like your mind will more and more frequently start interpreting like a gap between trees or a bush as a face or as an animal or as a, it just starts making more and more <laughs> mistakes um, and so you see things that aren't there. Um, as opposed to like seeing purple bunnies or something floating around. Um, <laughs> but that starts to happen more and more frequently. And if you're exhausted and tired, like it'll, you know, kick up your fight or flight and you'll get that like raw adrenaline. And then you're like, okay, chill out. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely experienced that on that route. At the very end of it, when my mind kind of realized I was going to make it and it allowed my guard to go down just a little, I started mm -hmm. having intense, um, like, instead of visual hallucinations, intense, like, bodily sensation hallucinations. Like, I got, I, I was overwhelmed with the idea that I was massively dehydrated and, like, had this sensation that my, my heart was, like, hurting or going to stop. And I'm like, dude, you were fine just a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> Chill out. Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of scary. <laughs> Um, and then sure enough, like I crossed the finish line and laid down and I was fine, but there was like these weird feedback signals coming from my body for a while there. Jeez. That's crazy. <laughs> so what happens after you hit hundred FKTs, FKTs, like, will you just keep on going? Well, I always like to say that the way, you know, you're doing something that's aligned with your, your vision is in the world and, and what makes you happy in the world is the way you celebrate doing the thing is by doing more of the thing. So I will probably while I'm out there, like I'll do a traverse and I'll be tired and kind of have to go slower on it because I've already done a bunch of stuff. And it'll be like, oh, that's such a cool traverse. I want to go back and do that really fast. Um, or, you know, maybe I'll do a part of it with a partner and use a right. rope and I'll go back and go, oh man, that was totally safe. I, I want to go do that faster without a rope. So that's probably what'll happen is I'll just immediately find more things I want to go do. 
Right. Um, but I'll also probably stop moving at such a breakneck pace with it. Um, cause I've been, I did 60 FKTs in 2020. Um, so averaged more than one per week, Jeez. um, which it beat me up pretty bad. I was pretty tired for a lot of the year. Um, pretty fatigued for a lot of the year. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably slow it down. Um, and mix in other objectives in with the FKTs, but I don't think, I don't think I'll just be like, Oh, 100 done. Never doing that again. Um, cause that just, I don't know. I love it too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like it. So COVID didn't really have much of an impact on, on your quest to, to 100. It sounds like. Well, I mean, I was going to go do international FKTs. So it, you know, put a, put an X nay on that, put a chopping block on those ideas. Um, right. but I, I, you know, kind of like to be over planned. So I have a notebook with like, at this point, I think it's close to 200 different FKTs I could either create or potentially take, um, beat the standing time on. And so I just, you know, adjusted i just pivoted and went sweet more time to play in my own backyard and the nice part about fkts is oftentimes they take you out into the back country out into the middle of nowhere away from people yeah so right. it, it was rela- it was relieving in a multitude of ways in that i wasn't near anyone who might transmit the virus to me and i also didn't have to hear any of the craziness in the news um so yeah some beautiful connection with nature and some beautiful silence all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. With COVID or without COVID. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what, like, what does your weekly training schedule look like or what did it look like in 2020? Like between each FKT, like I feel like the FKT would be the training almost. Um, so yeah, pretty much like the way I was doing it is treating I would alternate between bigger FKTs and smaller FKTs, sort of like, okay, the big one is going to fatigue me. And then I'll do um, some shorter ones where it's like the numbers still show that I should be able to like beat the standing time um, or like create a route so that um, there wasn't a standing time to beat, but it's still a worthy route um, while I'm kind of on that low. And then as I'm kind of recovering, come back and like hit another big one. Um, so I'd kind of periodize it on a mesoscale in that way. And then on a, on a micro scale, on a weekly scale, it would kind of be big effort on the weekend. And then like just a couple of recovery days doing stretching and some body care. And then maybe like a little shakeout run or maybe a few repeats on the track just to like, you know, do a little bit of leg opening and speed work, um, to try to maintain that a little bit or like hitting the fingerboard or hitting the weights a little bit, depending on what things were coming down the line a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, by and large, the training was the FKTs, which as a, a person who coaches people myself, I absolutely wouldn't recommend it. But since my objective was to see how many FKTs I could do in a year, like this was the best way that could be executed. But if like I was trying to put out some like star studded, single effort this is absolutely not the path to follow right right you yeah. don't happen to use whoop do you, do you not at the moment i am i am intrigued by it i may look into it uh yeah i was just wondering i would have loved to have seen what your whoop scores like recovery scores what have it looked like and strain <laughs> scores would have looked like each day i don't know if you know what what, what those are but 
like it was. I, I think I'm aware, like it tracks how fatigued your body is and like how yeah. hard each workout was and how well you're sleeping and yeah, um, all that yeah, stuff, w- right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have been really interested to see that. But uh, but anyway, doing all these FKTs isn't like your only job. Um, and as you've mentioned throughout the podcast so far, you're also a PE teacher, right? I am a PE teacher. That is correct. An elementary PE teacher. Elementary? Okay. Do you, like your students do they know like what they must know like what what you've been doing with all this like fkt stuff i mean it's it's kind of it's kind of like how you tell your mom you're going to do something dangerous you don't you, <laughs> you you tell her how beautiful it was and how amazing the views were and um the cool things you learned and you kind of leave out the fact that you were like hanging by your fingertips where if you messed up, you would fall and die. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of that thing where my, I tell stories to my students about that center around how I'm just a small kid from a small town. And I have these, I love the mountains and I love the outdoors and I'm able to go live these big, amazing adventures and these big dreams of mine. And I, I'm, I'm breaking these records because I take good care of my body. And because, you know, like I eat right and these different things. So I'm able to like tailor it into a message for them that's about their life and what they want to do. Um, but yeah, like nobody really knows like the deep specifics um, because it really doesn't serve a purpose for them. That's right. You know, if they want, if they want to do one of these particular adventures, uh, I'll, I'll tell them everything they want to know about it, but it really only comes across as bragging if I, tell people something they haven't asked to hear. Sure. Um, so I'll use it as a reference point for motivation. Um, I'll use it to show them pictures of how beautiful it is out there and the things they can go see. But yeah, no, no, it, uh, one friend likes to refer to it as my, um, my Superman life and my Clark Kent life. I'm like, that's a bit of an overstatement, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Do you have, I'm guessing you don't have your students running like, do you have them running like ramping all over the place during like the PE classes given your, like, do you take a different, do you take a different approach to? I I definitely, I, it definitely influences uh, how I teach in that I see, I don't just educate the physical, I educate through the physical, right? So I create situations like I got a big rock wall installed that's uh, just like a bouldering wall, if you will. Um, so like kids will get on that and I create different problems for them to figure out. And so like learning that, like you can do this problem solving with your body and that it's fun to face those challenges and like having conversations with your friends and like trying to figure things out. Like I create environments like that. And then also they get up there and they like face fear sometimes, like they'll get a fear response of a fear of heights, um, or get confused and freeze up and like then helping like coach them to figure out how to get down themselves instead of just like stepping in and helping them, um, like doing it for them. And then at the end of that, being able to go like, okay, you felt really afraid, didn't you? Yeah. But did you end up needing me? Well, no. So what did you do? What did you do that made it so you didn't need me? Well, I just figured out what, where, what move to make next. I'm like, exactly. Don't forget that. Um, that must be awesome moments. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. I I love moments like that. Cause that's something like that kid, whether they overtly remember that moment or not, that's a framework for what to do when you feel fear, right? right? A framework of, okay, 
what is the thing I can control? What is it I can do next? Which that's applicable whether you're you know, up on a rock climb or that's applicable if you're in life. Um, you know, both of those are effective ways to deal with fear um, in either of those situations. And you know, just introducing them, because uh, I've seen the importance um, of having first experiences with things and how difficult it is to start things later in life because we get so self-judgmental. Um, you know, we have, I like to think kindergartners are the greatest teachers because they'll fail, they'll fail at something, just wildly fail, like not even be close a thousand times and never judge themselves once. They'll just happily go get the basketball again and shoot it at the hoop and, and miss again, right? Um, and then as adults, we miss twice and we're like, I'm not good at this. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like getting that reminder from them that it's like, we need to be willing to suck at something. Like embrace the discomfort of starting something new and like abide and don't judge, like suspend judgment and just keep playing with it in the same way a kindergartner would. And then at some point you'll have other people going, how did you get so good at this? And you'll just wake up and realize like, wait, I don't suck anymore. Um, <laughs> someone's asking me for my advice. They see me as good at this. What? Um, <laughs> and you know, that's like how I felt with rock climbing when I started after years of endurance sport, I literally was the worst rock climber at my gym for like the whole first year I was there, like everybody was able to climb things that I couldn't even make the first moves on. And it was just like, I was consistently the worst, consistently the worst. And I just kept staying at it, staying at it, you know, trying new routes, um, eventually got to where I was, you know, getting some routes and then even started, cause it's a small gym in a small town, like uh, setting some of my own and then started setting harder and harder ones and like learning the movements to solve them. And then I, I can still remember the day when someone's like, oh man, how did you get so good? How did you solve that? And I'm like, wait, I'm being, they're like asking me, whoa, this is cool. Like I'm seeing yeah. someone who's good. Um, <laughs> and like realizing I sort of had crossed that threat, some, some invisible threshold of, okay, I'm at, I at least know enough that I can help others around me. And the only, the only way you get to that place is if you're willing to endure the discomfort before you get there. And that's something kids have, have on us because they don't even perceive that discomfort. Um, right. So, yeah, I definitely like to incorporate those teachings across different ages. And I definitely like to set them up to face challenge, but to see challenge as fun, to see challenge as a creative problem to solve as, as the, the different discomforts we face aren't signs to give up. They're just our body giving us some kind of feedback on how we're doing it. Um, you know, like running a mile, like talking through like, yeah, you don't want to go out too fast because then it starts to hurt really bad in those final laps, right? Like, and you slow down and, and your body screams at you to give up. So you want to go a little slower than you think you need to for the first two laps. But on the last lap, you don't want to have gone so slow that it still feels super easy because then you're going to know you could have done better. Like talking through little things like that of how to like meter out a great effort on something and that it's a, like this creative problem to figure out like, well, just how fast can I go at the beginning to still like not slow down at the end? Um, and seeing it that way and embracing the discomfort of, you know, moments like that. Yeah, it's just like, I think it's, it's not that my teaching's majorly different in what I teach, although I'm the first teacher in my school district to get skateboards in my classroom. Um, hmm. But 
it's subtle differences in how I teach it and what I talk about right. as I'm teaching it, how to perceive the thing you're doing rather than just doing it without any sort of a, a primer on like what you might experience. Yeah, so I'd say that's probably the greatest way that I differ. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, so getting to these last um, several questions here. So you can tell me if this is inaccurate. Um, this might be a little dated, but I read somewhere online that you developed a van lifestyle. Um, like what, is, what does that entail and how long have you been living that lifestyle? As of April of this year, I will have lived five years um, out of a van without paying rent to anyone for a place to live. So when I, it's really easy, like when I'm on the road, uh, whether I'm guiding on a mountain or I'm, you know, pursuing an FKT, you know, it's pretty easy. I'll just uh, either utilize like showers in, in a hostel or just jump in a creek or jump in a lake. Hmm. Um, and then when I'm living the urban van life, uh, while I'm being a teacher, it's pretty easy because I'm a PE teacher. So literally in my office next to me right now, there's a, a shower and my own bathroom. So it's like that resource is there. I have yeah. a, a friend who lives by himself that loves it when I drop by and bring him a beer and, you know, lets me do laundry or grab a shower there if I want or cook in his kitchen. Um, I have a little office space, a co-working space where I trade um, coaching um, for one of the owners for a heavily discounted membership there. And they have like a little kitchenette and a fridge that I store some stuff in. And it gives me a space with like fast internet and access 24 seven to that space. So if I wanna go in there and like work or watch a movie until I feel sleepy and wanna go out to my van to sleep, I can do that. So yeah, I've created a pretty functional life because we live during a time where there's so many duplicates of resources everywhere whether it's refrigeration or showers or toilets or laundry. Um, so it is kind of a, a perk of modern times that it's, it's easy to find those resources that normally we bundle into one place that we call our house. Yeah, they're just readily available in so many ways. And it's, it's kind of cool as a lifestyle because it's a little bit more, it encourages more socialness. Like, like I mentioned, like I go see my friend often. Um, and I'm in that office space often with those other coworkers. Right. Um, you know, and it's a cool space because those are like the entrepreneurs of the town, right? So they're the forward thinkers. So I get to sit and have a voice and hear the voices of those who are doing the most creative things for, for our town and in our community. So that's like a, a cool perk that, you know, maybe if I was paying rent on my own house um, or on an apartment, I like wouldn't want to pay the money to also be in that space or I wouldn't have a motivation to even need to be there. So it is fun how it changes it that way. And then it also incentivizes actually getting out on more adventures and doing more cool things whenever I'm off on a break or off for the weekend. Because if I'm, in a, if I'm a dude in a van at a mountain, that's badass. Or climbing rocks, that's badass. But if I'm a dude in a van sitting in the parking lot, it's kind of a loser. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this like hidden incentive to like do more rad stuff because it just doesn't feel cool. It'll be like, well, oh, here I am in my van doing nothing. Um, meanwhile, when right. you have a house and a really comfortable space, it's like really easy to be like, oh, let's just let's just relax this weekend. <laughs> right. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It also almost forces you to prioritize 
experiences versus material possessions, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Because there's, yeah, it, one of it, I almost, I have almost forgotten at this point, one of the original parts of the, the, the starting experiment was the experiment of minimalism. How few things can I live with and be happy? And, you know, as long as I have like my, my equipment to go adventuring and I have a warm sleeping bag, even when it's, you know, negative 20 out, I've got a solid negative 40 bag and I've got my running shoes and my climbing gear and I've got a way to make good coffee. I've got those things. I find that my, I've, I'm unfazed by the loss of all the other stuff, like heating and air conditioning and my own shower and my own place to do laundry. Um, like my, my overall happiness in life is unaffected as long as I have those basics. And so that's why I've continued um, running the experiment as long as I have is it's like, I genuinely have not found a reason yet why I would be happier paying someone else a large chunk of my adventure money to have the things I already seem to have. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, how do you approach nutrition, recovery, and sleep? And like, has your, and has your approach changed much over the years? Absolutely. When I, when I was racing more, um, I definitely had a much more strict style of what to eat before a race, how to sleep before a race, how to taper before a race. I, I, like I mentioned, I was kind of a student of my sport when I was young. I was very, very drawn to like figure out how to do it for myself. Like rather than wanting like a coach to tell me what to do, I wanted to understand why I was making the decisions I was making for myself. Um, and that definitely still influences and like the things I learned becoming a physical educator. And I was a personal trainer as well um, for a long while. And I'm a coach now. Like that all still clearly is a part of how I just operate in the world. Those are all a part of my decision making. But I mean, obviously with what I'm doing, I'm pushing the limits on what would ever lead to an optimized performance like we talked earlier. So yeah. I definitely, I don't have as structured of eating. I kind of eat intuitively. I'm an intuitive omnivore. Like if my body is like wanting a huge plate of vegetables, like that's what I'm going to go for. If my body's wanting some meat-based protein, then that's what I'm going to go for. Um, if I want fruit, then that's what I'm going to go for. So I kind of like walk around. I'm like, well, what does it feel like my body wants? And then just consuming enough calories of that. And then also sort of paying attention like, okay, am I getting enough of my macronutrients? Am I getting enough protein? Right. Am I getting enough carbs to actually like make up for the huge expenditures when you go do, you know, 80 miles with 26,000 feet of elevation gain and loss. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, that's a lot of food. Um, as far as while I'm out in an effort, uh, I use, I, since I'm my, my attempt is to go fast and light with an FKT. I use a lot of, uh, fluid based, like mix in products like tailwind nutrition um, or like gnarly nutrition that I know are going to give me all of my basic caloric and electrolyte needs during an effort in the smallest and lightest form possible as far as volume. And so that's kind of like, I, I conceptualize it in two forms. One is the essential needs. And then I, I also pack food based on psychological benefit. Cause anytime you can give yourself like a little reward, however silly it is, it's going to lessen your perceived effort. Oh, I like and that a so lot. Yeah. As, yeah. It's like, you know, that dopamine response lowers perceived effort. So it's like, even if it's a, a cookie that serves no purpose to my actual nutrition or I'm craving salami. So I bring, I bring a bit of salami, <laughs> even though it's like serving no real purpose to the, the nutrition of the effort, 
the thought that I'm going to get to bite into that um, at the halfway point or at the summit of a mountain um, when it's cold out and that like meaty saltiness is going to taste good. Um, like that's a huge psychological benefit. So yeah, I, I always do yeah. my food in two, two in two forms when I'm out there, the essentials and then the things that are just there to give me that like booster reward. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I do it. And then, yeah, I, as I said, when I'm not out on route, it's kind of just intuitive omnivore and a whole lot of calories. Yeah. So many calories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine. Yeah. I, I like that about like having that reward food or nutrition um, packed into it also. Yeah. I think that's really smart. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years, hypothetically. What's the one thing you'd want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? Well, I obviously want to be done with the 100 FKT project, even though I'm probably still out doing FKTs off, off and on. But I've noticed that I'm getting, because I'm doing something crazy and something difficult in a way that no one's done it before, it's earning me permission to speak at the table, if you will, of like other outdoors people. Um, people have name recognition of me in some places. And so I would love to see myself turn that into permission to speak more inspiration and, and more skills into people's lives um, from, from my journey out here doing these hundred different FKTs. Um, so I'd love it if we bumped into each other in five years and I was having, I don't know, even just between six and 10 speaking engagements in a given year where I was traveling around and talking to people and, and, and taking these things I've learned from my years of being out here um, it's pretty much been two decades now that I've been out pushing my body um, and, and helping people understand how they can unlock more potential in themselves or navigate traumatic setbacks um, or, you know, find creative ways to do really hard things. Yeah. So I guess that would be the thing I would be most proud of for having created in, in five years from now. Awesome. Um, on a non-FKT day, uh, what does your daily routine typically look like? As an ADHD human being, I struggle to establish and maintain routines. It's one of the natures of how the, how the brain works. So I, I mean, I am a leaf on the wind. Like, one, like my <laughs> time of waking up goes up and down. Like sometimes I'm late to work, sometimes I'm early to work. And I've just embraced that about myself. So I guess unroutine is my routine. The things that definitely happen in a day is I do things to take care of myself, whether that's stretching that day or massage or other just different, different body care techniques. Um, I'm going to make sure that like I get my quality nutrition in the morning um, in whatever form, whether I'm doing it in like a, a smoothie form or I can uh, cook it for myself form. Those are going to be a part of the day. And then whatever workout, especially during these, like this crazy FKT push of 2020, it was kind of like, okay, what's the workout that serves the greatest purpose um, for maintenance and like getting my body like through to the next effort. Um, I'm excited. I'm so excited for being able to go this year. Now that I only have six, six more, Wait, let me think. Yeah, six more to go to like set myself up to be at 99 before that really big 100th one. So I can kind of casually 
go at those instead of like a breakneck pace. And so now right. I can actually like get back into a training cycle and like, okay, I'm going to, you know, do a long run on this day and I'm going to do a tempo work on this day. And it's like, I'm kind of excited for that again. Cause that used to be the, the greatest routine in my life was this flow of like easy run, fast run, easy run, tempo run, easy run, long run. Right. Like just kind of this, that, that up and down flow of what workout was coming that day. Um, and I've come to miss that over the course of this just insane um, yeah. adventure life. Um, I do love it. I do. I have loved, I've loved every minute of what I've done out there, but there's a part of me that's like, it'll be nice to just be like, Oh, I'm going to run a five mile tempo today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I get that for sure. And so as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? We alluded to a lot of the mechanics of this. Um, I think for me, I, I'm this, you know, restless, creative little kid who, you know, because of the ADHD would constantly make impulsive mistakes that ruined friendships or, you know, got me the rap as the, you know, bad kid in class. Even though I didn't intend to be, I was like a conscientious and caring little kid with a soft heart. And so I definitely have this undying desire to like sort of prove that I care and prove that I want to do good in the world and prove that I'm not just a mess up. And I did a lot of, I've done a lot of work on myself that that doesn't own me. Cause I think a lot of people get lost to that drive and it just owns every part of who they are. And I've definitely done a lot of work to have that like not lead to bad outcomes um, where I'm willing to step on other people in order to achieve that. But it's still a pervasive driving force. It's this cool switch I can flip when stuff gets hard where it's like, no, I, I, I have to, like, I, I, I absolutely ha am going, I will, not even have to, I will dig deep and do this thing. And yeah. people will see what I can do. And so I think that's been a pervasive drive. I think having, like I mentioned, those fears earlier right over my shoulder of not wasting, not waking up and wondering what the fuck I did with 30 years of my life. Uh, and then I have, I have this vision, like, like I see myself doing big things. I see people have, having a reaction to the size of the things I do. And so that vision drives me, me and, you know, it gives me a direction and a purpose. Awesome. Cool. And then lastly here, before I wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice around like becoming and staying driven? would you like to leave people listening? Oh man. I mean, we really touched on a lot of the ones uh, not living in your own shadow um, and nouns. I guess, I guess the other thing I'd leave behind with like this idea of like finding a vision in life is oftentimes I think we try to think we need to see the bullseye of the target before we even take a shot at it. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think I like to think of this concept of blurry targets and that as long as you're aiming for something that you can see is at least close, like going to land on that target, like that's going to move you in the direction of greater clarity. And every time we, we have a success that moves us toward it, we get greater clarity. You know, you go, you go to school for something, you kind of have an idea of what you want to do. And then you learn, oh, wait, this is a cool offshoot of that, that you would have right. never learned if you hadn't at least taken that first step. And so with anything you want to pursue in life, you're going to get greater clarity on the bullseye for yourself as you move toward it. 
And the way you keep yourself moving toward it is you got to set bright lines. And those are the rules you live by. You, you, the things you're going to do every day, the workouts you're going to run that produce the, the outcomes you want, you know, in my case. So I like, I like to think about bright lines and blurry targets as a way to make sure I'm not trying to look for a super clear bullseye. And I'm not, you know, just like driving down a road that doesn't have uh, good lines painted in, in the dark when it's raining and you, you can't really tell, am I about to run off the road? Is that a corner up there? Um, making sure your lines are bright are going to keep you guided through the hard times when, when, you know, hardship comes and setbacks come, you're going to, you're going to know exactly what to do, what your process is, what your rules are to get through it. So I guess that would be my, my parting advice. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's like a very good kind of detailed explanation of what you'll hear like people say about instead of ready, aim, fire, like ready, fire, aim, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. I think it's a great place to end. Uh, Jason, thanks again for coming to the show. This is great. It was an awesome chat. It was a great talk. I enjoyed this. Awesome. Yeah. Where can people go to uh, find you online? Um, like if you want to reach out to me and ask questions or have a conversation or see what I'm up to with this crazy hundred FKT project or the speaking that I build off the end of it. Um, my Instagram's probably the quickest place I respond. Um, I tend to hang out there maybe even more than I should. And that's just my first and last name, Jason Hardrath, all one word. Um, that's my handle there. I'm also on Facebook, uh, tend to be the only Jason Hardrath that pops up. Um, and then I do have a website that I'm currently building. That's also jasonhardrath.com. Um, not a ton on there yet. Look for more to come, um, you know, subscribe or whatever. And I'm going to be putting stories and um, links to things like this, where I have awesome conversations with awesome people and I'll build more of the speaking platforms and what my offerings are there as well. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.